The Ancestral Cook's Bible, Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon Morell. We love this book and we've cooked so much from it. In this episode, you'll hear which six recipes from the hundreds filling its pages are our absolute favourites. We'll share with you why we love them, give you tips about the ingredients and processes and talk about how we've used them to feed our families and friends and made them our own. Our six go-to dishes include two breakfasts, two mains, a dessert and a vegetable ferment and hail from all over the globe. Whether you have a copy of the book yet or not, listen in and you'll leave totally inspired to make these delicious, nutritious dishes part of your own kitchen and life. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Good afternoon, Alison. Hello, hello. Good afternoon. Good morning. <laughs> yeah, all the things. Uh, yeah. It is so cold over here. We're recording this a little ahead of posting it, um, mm. but my recording is happening in May. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's our coldest spring on record. So wow. it's cold. <laughs> it's warm here. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, man. Uh, I, I can't wait till we have that warmness. Um, well, I'm super excited for today because mm. it may be cold outside, but our kitchens are warm. Indeed <laughs> Good place are. to be. Yes. <laughs> so let me know what you had for lunch because I haven't had breakfast yeah. yet and I'm hungry. Oh, I'm going to make you hungry. <laughs> I had, yeah, I, I seem to talk about lentils a lot when we get to this bit. I have my normal lentils, yeah, which are cooked up in bulk with lard, onion, garlic, ginger, um, nigella seeds. I can't remember what else I threw in there. Um, and some stock. They were in the fridge, so I um, got a portion of those out. Then I had them with oats. I've been making occasionally some milk out of whole oat groats. And once I've made the milk, I've got what's left of the oat groats left behind. So I cook those in stock, and they are... You know what porridge is like when it's good, really creamy, beautiful. I had those alongside the lentils. And then some broccoli. And I've taken to frying the broccoli in lard because um, often we do a big bunch and I give some to Gable for his lunch the next day. And he prefers it like that as opposed to just cold when it's been boiled. It's not as interesting. Mm-hmm. So um, I fried it in lard with some onion and some garlic and some sumac on it. And those three things together in a big sort of bowl with my lunch and I sat outside it was really nice nice that sounds how good how about you you said you well, haven't eaten yeah so you that made you hungry <laughs> I haven't eaten yet um so I'll be having scrambled eggs and okay I was telling you before we started recording that it's interesting having a flock of birds and watching the ebb and flow of the eggs so we have mm. a couple different heritage breeds um and I should say, I'm not opposed to non-heritage breeds. <clears throat> I just, I don't want people to think that I've got like a, you know, 
a, a, a cultish obsession with being heritage only. <laughs> heritage breeds just tend to be really good for farmers like me be, that don't have, you know, like antibiotics and things like that because yeah. they're bred to live without them. So anyway, um, I mean, there's other breeds that are as well, more modern breeds, but I just I don't have those yet. So anyway, yeah. heritage birds don't lay every single day like a lot of the big commercial egg laying birds do. So you can actually sort of see their dynamic cycle. And did you know humans are also more fertile in the spring? No, just I didn't like know that. animals. I I did not. Wow. I did not know this. <laughs> Gosh, the w- women are more fertile in the spring. Like who knew? Okay, whatever. Weird. Mm. Um, but the birds are as well and they lay like a massive amount of eggs Mm -hmm. early on and then we let some of our birds go broody because we like perpetuate our own flock from our own birds and so then we see another drop in the egg production because they lay a clutch and then they sit right so they're not laying Uh, anymore yeah Um, so you kind of got to decide how many birds you want to let sit because you know you won't be getting eggs from them but yeah. yeah, it's so interesting just seeing the ebb and flow. So how many eggs are you getting a mo- at the moment every day? Oh, I don't know. Last month we got about 1,200 eggs. So Gosh. yeah, <laughs> so I expect this month it will drop a little bit. Okay, well, still enough to have scrambled eggs for breakfast when we finish recording. Yeah, we'll make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> we'll eke it out. <laughs> so. Nice. Other exciting news, though, more exciting than the fact that yes. I'm having breakfast. Um, you and I have been doing a lot of work on our Patreon, which mm. to me is super exciting. So we we have had such a great response from you guys, the listeners, um, not only with joining Patreon, but also messaging us and keeping us updated on how things are going in your own kitchen. And mm-hmm. Allison and I have just found the longer we're doing this, the more opportunities for collaboration and really cool projects kind of come up to us and so we wanted to create more patreon sponsorship levels for the podcast because that just expands our capability to do even more and throw even more work at rob (laughs) and even bring in other people to help us work as well just to give us more time to do more creative collaborations and more um, just incredible work expanding the message and um, education around ancestral food. So do you want to talk about that for a minute, Alison? Yeah, no, I'm really excited about it, just as excited as you are, because um, I know, you know, we've, I know. We've, we so had cool. our really faithful patrons and that's helped mm-hmm. us to um, oh, yes. to enable Rob to do some mixing for us. Um, but it feels like the podcast has expanded so much and... Mm-hmm. I mean, when you start any new project, you don't really know how it's going to go <laughs> and it's gone really well. Right. And we've had so much, like you said, so much feedback and so many people contacting us that it really feels like we would, it would be great to take it to another level mm-hmm. now and have people um, come sponsor us at whatever they feel they can and receive benefits back from us all the things that we love creating we'll just create more of them and and give them to you and allow us the capability to think okay well we can do something bigger with this now you know we can hear what everyone's saying to us and we can take that and we can create more something bigger than the podcast bring people together and allow further access to 
the important work that is ancestral food in the kitchen, you know, from an environmental standpoint, Mm -hmm. from a health standpoint, from a community standpoint, it would be fabulous to realise the things that, you know, we're imagining right now. And it's also fabulous to have patrons around us, to, to have that community and support and to feel like we might be far away geographically, but we are not far away spiritually. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're a community mm-hmm. and we're growing together. And so, yeah, do head over to patreon.com ancestral kitchen podcast. So patreon.com, sorry, forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast and have a look at the levels that we've created and what we really want to build and share through there and see whether it's something that you'd like to come and be part of. Because um, I love, I love seeing new patrons come on. Yeah, it's so exciting. And I, (laughs) I wish I could give you guys a glimpse inside of Allison's mind, the things she tells (laughs) me, the the, the ideas that she's, and, and she didn't just come up with these, these ideas that she's had for a long time. And, Mm. and she's starting to have the infrastructure in place to start developing things. And and so if you guys could just see what's in her mind, you'd be like, what is going on? There's so many great ideas in Allison's head and we just got to help make them happen. You guys, (laughs) that's all I'm here to do. (laughs) That's very kind. That's very kind. I think a lot of people have talked about the dynamic between you and I, and, you know, not just (laughs) geographically the dynamic because, you know, you're in the States and I'm in Europe and that gives us very different mindsets. But I also think there's a nice dynamic between us in that um, you keep me grounded sometimes when I when I become too <laughs> organised with all my projects all over the place and I'm trying to put them in some sort of structure and order. And it, it feels really good to be creating this together and to bring on Patreons and make it something that we're creating together as a community because we all believe in the same thing and we all love the same thing. We all want to see the same thing in the world that makes it so much bigger than than just me here in my kitchen. And and that's what I really want to see. You know, that's the thing that fires yeah. up any idea that I have for sure. Yeah. And it feels like a, the right time. I was thinking about this yesterday too, that we're standing on the shoulders of a lot of great people, you know, Joel Salatin, Sally Fallon, mm. um, Sandra Katz. They've been really putting the work in for decades. Yeah. And... And Incredible it's work. the, it, we, we can stand on their shoulders and start to get some really practical things into people's hands, which is super powerful. And yeah, the, the community has been a great aspect of it because sometimes it does feel sort of like you're the only weirdo out there, you know, in the kitchen fermenting your oatmeal or something. Mm. And people ask me all the time if I've met you, Allison, and they're always really surprised when I say, no, mm-hmm. we've never met in person. No. <laughs> It feels like we have, but we haven't. It does. It does. And and that's how it feels with, um, <clears throat> you guys know, those of you who are already patrons that like you st- like, what? I've never met Aaron. That's so weird. It doesn't even mm. seem right. But yeah, it's true. Maybe one day we'll have a big ancestral kitchen conference oh, yeah. somewhere. Oh, yeah. And then we'll okay, have you guys just got like, you guys kitchen. just got like a little, a little <laughs> snippet of how Allison's mind works. <laughs> She's there that. already. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. 
Anyway, let's get so back let's... to the books that are in front the book that's in front of me now on today's episode, shall we? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, guys, just go check out the Patreon feed. We'll put the link in the yeah. show notes. And I think some of the stuff that we put on there might surprise you a little bit. So Yeah. <laughs> Let us know. Yeah. <laughs> All right, where to begin? Nourishing yeah. traditions. So we've already done one episode on nourishing traditions. If you haven't listened to that already, you don't know what the book is, you want to, you even want more nourishing traditions, even though you know what the book is, go back and check out our previous episode on nourishing traditions, the ancestral cookbook. We love this book so much that um, we did say at the end of that episode that we would do more episodes on it. And this is going to be one of them in that both Andrea and I will be digging into um, three of our most favourite recipes in nourishing traditions. So if you have a copy of the book, which I know a lot of people did buy one after the previous episode, go grab it, press pause, go grab it and bring it over and you can follow along with us as we share with you some of the recipes that are, are staples in our own kitchens. Yeah, just turn the page when you hear the sound of the lard hitting the pan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah make a sound. Now that's the book I'd listen to. <laughs> Okay. Who's starting, Andrew? Do you want to to tell us about one I of your choices? I was going to say you should start. Okay. I'll start with yeah. a simple one then. So um, one of the dishes, one of the recipes from nourishing traditions that I've chosen is the fermentation, is a fermentation recipe. And I think when I first got nourishing traditions, I was eating raw vegan, coming out of eating raw vegan. And the thing that inspired me the most when I started learning about ancestral food and ancestral eating was the fermentation and the fermentation kind of techniques. And there's a fabulous section right at the beginning of Nourishing um, Traditions on fermented vegetables and fruits. And there are hundreds of recipes in there of different ferments you can do. And the one that I've picked as, as my favourite is ginger carrots. Now, we do make sauerkraut. I mean, we have sauerkraut every single day. I, I didn't say in my breakfast, in my lunch um, summary that I had sauerkraut with my lunch because I just, I do every day. Um, but I kind of see it as a, um, a staple and it's just there all the time. Whereas other vegetable ferments, I kind of bring in for variation and I add on top of it. And the ginger carrots have such a fabulous taste and they're such a wonderful recipe to bring to people who haven't fermented before. Because the sweetness of the carrots and the zinginess of the ginger in them really just pleases so many people's palates. And it's a really simple thing to do. You know, you literally, you're just grating the carrots and you're grating fresh ginger and then you're mixing in a, a brine with them. The recipe, which is on page 95, I should have told you that earlier, is um, includes whey. And I think when I originally made it, like a decade ago, or more than a decade ago when I got this book, I probably would have put whey in it. But since then, most of my vegetable fermenting I do with just a salt brine, not with whey. So there are instructions that Sally's put in there to say, you know, use whey if you want to. But if you can't, add an additional tablespoon of salt. So literally, you just grate the carrots, grate the ginger, make the brine, mix it together. Make sure that all the carrots are under the liquid when you ferment. That's very important when fermenting any form of vegetable, that that 
um, the vegetable matter stays under the liquid. So just top the jar up if you need to, and then you leave it. When I make the brine for it, I usually do five grams of salt to a cup of water, um, and then pour that over the top. I use weights, glass weights, to keep the carrots down. Sometimes I'll put a layer of cabbage over the top just to stop any straggly bits of grated carrot coming up the side of the jars. And unlike a lot of other vegetable ferments, I prefer to eat this one quite fresh. So I, I find it has a tendency to go slimy if you leave it for longer. And there's yeah. not really any taste benefits from, from leaving it longer. And actually, contrary to popular belief, there's not really a great deal of health benefits in studies from leaving vegetable ferments for extended periods of time. So usually I will leave the ginger carrots for three, four, possibly even five days. Sally does say three days before putting them in cold storage. Um, and I think some people have contacted me about this recipe and said, oh, I can't make this without it going slimy. And that would be something I would say, make sure that mm. you, um, you don't ferment it for long. It just doesn't need it. And then it's a wonderful side dish to have with um, a main meal, to have with cheeses, to have with anything that needs a bit of zing. You can put it on top of foods that you're eating. I just, I absolutely love them. And I think they're a great um, kind of introduction to fermented vegetables and introduction to fermented foods that you can put in front of guests that you have and give them a spoonful and then start talking to them about it, which is another yeah. reason why I love it. <laughs> It's such an easy recipe, like you said, and I've also done it with, there was a farmer by our old house, just a little organic farm, a couple acres, and he would sell his um, like buggy carrots, like the mm, small mm. carrots that the bugs had kind of got to. And he said, nobody really wants them. So he's selling for really cheap. And I just buy entire like grocery bags of them. Mm. And me and the kids would just trim them up and make sure we got any bugs out and then yeah. basically fill half gallon jars with those carrots. So they're mm -hmm. almost like whole. And yeah. those we would keep for, actually I have, I think I have a quart still in my fridge that's probably like two years old, but I'm going to probably just chuck it to the chickens. But, um, but I would say after eight months in the fridge, mm. those whole carrots start to get that sliminess to them. So that's um, the difference because they're not grated. Mm -hmm, You've mm -hmm. kept them whole. Yeah. 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 They last a lot longer. And we just did like three days on the counter and then popped into the fridge. So they kind of kept chilled this whole time. Um, but yeah, grated is nice because you can put it on like, <clears throat> if you make like sausages and buns yeah. or um, sandwiches, Relish. you can even like mix it into mayo or yeah. yeah um, I think I didn't say that I don't generally peel my carrots. We buy our carrots from a local veg supplier who doesn't use pesticides, um, you know, uh, so I'm very happy with the carrots that we get. So if they're dirty, then I will kind of scrub them. But apart from that, I don't peel them. I think that a lot of the vegetables have more um, goodies on the outside of them, which helps Ooh, yeah, with the fermentation. Definitely. So if you can avoid having to peel the carrots before you do it, then... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. That that would be best, I this think. This is where um the I don't know if this is also in the UK and in Europe, but in America mm. and I was talking to 
Rebecca from a humble place yesterday, we were chatting about this and we were talking about the Crisco and everything like that Yeah, yeah, yeah. and how they're so obsessed with sanitation at that time period. And so I was telling her, you know, for us now, is that the water we're swimming in this obsession with sanitation and purifying and things being really clean and boiling and scrubbing and soaping and everything. And what's interesting is when you come to fermentation, you do want your utensils and things to be clean, but an obsession with sanitation will actually decrease your um, quality of ferments. You know, if you're trying to peel and scrub and um, make sure there's not one speck of dirt on your food and things like Mm -hmm. that, then you'll actually have a poorer result. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So yeah, try not to um to peel so yeah that's my first choice ginger carrots simple but just an absolute favorite here and such a nice thing to share that's a great one what have you got for us okay so i'm actually just going to jump back a few pages to 88 okay Okay, i'm turning the page i feel like we're preaching sermons out of our bible (laughs) (laughs) turn with me to page 88 (laughs) okay um, the cultured milk smoothie. This is one of the very first things I made out of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely love this uh, postpartum with my first. This was my great discovery was this um, beverage. So it's just a very simple smoothie. Um, somebody told me the name sounds gross. Cultured milk smoothie. And I mm-hmm. doesn't sound gross to me. I don't mm-hmm. know why. I don't know what they were thinking, but anyways, um, Sally gives you basically two options in here. She has her banana version or her berry version. Mm -hmm. I have genuinely tried to decide which one I like better. I'm like, (laughs) you know what? This is the one. And then the next day I'm like, I was wrong. This is Mm. one. I really can't decide which one I prefer. Um, and of course you can make any variation you want to, but it's, um, a whole milk, uh, buttermilk, kefir, or yogurt. So any cultured milk that you have yeah. on hand, um, a ripe banana or a cup of berries, fresh or frozen. That tends to be the one I make the berry one, just because okay. we don't often have bananas on hand. Yeah. Um, coconut oil, egg yolks, maple syrup or stevia powder. And uh, honestly, with the fruit in there, you could leave that out yeah. if you wanted. Um, vanilla extract and nutmeg for the banana version. She just adds a yeah. little, little, you know, seasoning to that. Um, so yeah, I just throw it all in the smoothie. And um, I've also tried tossing in a handful of spinach. Sometimes that can be good. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know. You could do all kinds of different things. It's a smoothie, but what I love about it, it, imagine with the banana, put a bit of a spoonful of cocoa powder in that would be lovely. Yeah. Yeah. What I love about this recipe Mm. was that, um, I always said it was one of the meals I can make with one hand. So, you know, when you have a newborn baby, um, sometimes you're like, what can I eat? And this was something that I could prepare with one hand with the baby and the other arm. And then I could even wash the container, you know, rinse out the mixer, put hot water and soap in it, put it back on the stand, mix it again. Um, it was just a really, really simple thing. And my kids love it too. Um, sometimes I would 
you know, make it, not finish it, put it in the fridge, have it later, you know, just shake it up if it separates. Um, it was just a, a great handy... thing for breakfast for kiddies. I can imagine, you know, because it's so fun, good. you know, so they, they've got the smoothie, it's thick, it's sweet, it's fruity oh, yeah. and, you know, they can make a big moustache on their <laughs> top lip. When yeah, they're drinking exactly. It. And it, exactly. It, it's, I imagine, and a lot, I see a lot of questions from people who want breakfast ideas for little ones. And oh, as yeah. part of a variety, you know, obviously some days you could do something else. You could do oatmeal, you could do different things. But to have this mm-hmm. in the kind of catalogue of breakfast that you could make, it seems like a, an obvious choice to me for, for a breakfast drink, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and if you wanted a to make it really extra proteiny or whatever, you could take some of the next recipe I'm going to share, which is a fermented oat, and you could put some of those in there cold, like your fermented oats left over, and mix yeah. those in. Yeah, and I'm thinking you could also put collagen powder in if you wanted to oh, yeah. add some extra zingy oh, yeah. protein into it. Um and maybe even you know some nuts. If you soak your nuts overnight, oh, you totally. could throw some nuts in there yeah. as well because they'd be soft and so they would blend up really nicely. Yeah, I've tried doing like a tiny amount of soaked chia seeds. You know, you don't oh, want to do a seed. lot of that, but just, yeah, mm. yeah, your favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you can make it sweet with the fruit or not. You know, you don't, you don't have to put fruit in it if you're just not into that. Um, so... Do it's you just a great foundation. do you make yours with kefir or have you used buttermilk usually, and yogurt yeah. instead? You usually use kefir. Yeah, I think I've done all the options at various times, but kefir tends to be my favorite cultured milk just because it's really easy to make, and I can have jars and jars and jars of it on hand all the time, and it's convenient. So, and you could put some of your new cow's cream in it. Oh, the Jersey cream ah, that would be lovely. Yeah, totally. <laughs> All right. What Wonderful. else do you have, Alison? Okay, let me one? go back to my list. My next one, we need to turn to page 464, right towards the end. All right. So, um, All our shuffling pages. Yeah, there we go. Kasha. So there's actually a whole two pages dedicated to Kasha in Nourishing Traditions, 464 and 465, with various different recipes. And Kasha is um, the etymology, I think it's originally a Russian word that means porridge, and it's come to kind of refer to buckwheat, which is a grain that has a long, long history in Russia and areas around Russia. And um, this is a gluten-free recipe, which I particularly like. Um, We haven't had it so much recently because it's not lectin-free. So buckwheat isn't lectin-free, but it is gluten-free. Confusing because the name has the word wheat in it, but it's not a wheat at all. It's not actually um, a grain. It's a seed. And buckwheat is a relative of the rhubarb. Um, So it's in the same family as rhubarb, which is interesting. And I started making this as one of the first recipes I made from this book when, um, when I bought it. And the second recipe on page 464, the Russian kasha, is absolutely delicious. And the reason I like it so much is because it's simple to make and yet it is so rich because you use chicken stock, because you use butter and because you use an egg. 
And there's something magic about putting those things in with a warm grain. I think it's, you know, it's like when you have a porridge and you put cream in it and you put egg in it. It is just, it's food for the soul, like on a, a really deep level. And um, the way that Sally kind of lays this out on this page with these four recipes is that the kasha, the Russian kasha and the kasha nut loaf are all made with um, buckwheat groats that have been previously soaked and then kind of sprouted a little bit and then dehydrated. Whereas the kasha casserole at the top of page 465, she uses buckwheat groats that haven't been treated like that. And in that case, she soaks them in an acidic medium like we know, you know, with other grains um, to kind of treat them before we eat them. Sometimes I do that with these cashews. Sometimes I sprout, soak them and sprout them and dehydrate them. Sometimes I don't. And I haven't been so strict with buckwheat because I know it's not um, a gluten grain. And historically, it's a grain that I find easier to digest than some of the gluten grains in that um, the way I know that is that I... I find, you know, that I'm kind of hungry earlier. My body doesn't take so long to break it down. So sometimes I will make this Russian kasha and I will actually um, soak the buckwheat previously and then I will bake it to dehydrate it. And if I do that, I do it in bulk. And then I've got a container in the cupboard which has got, you know, like three, four kilograms of buckwheat in it that's dehydrated and as long as it's dehydrated thoroughly it will last for a really long time and then I can just bring it out the the thing that then brings the recipe the Russian casa recipe to life aside from all the wonderful ingredients is the toasting of that dehydrated buckwheat because I've done this with other grains as well but when you when you toast a dry grain the flavours that are imparted to it bring so much more to the dish that it's finally cooked in than if you hadn't toasted that grain. I guess it's kind of similar to toasting a, a spice. You know, you bloom a spice or you dry toast a spice. The flavours change. When you cook a bread, the crust of it gets brown and you get those sugars come out and it changes the flavour. I think a similar thing happens when you put buckwheat that's dry and dehydrated or even if you haven't sprouted it and dehydrated it you could just do it with the buckwheat straight from the packet when you put that buckwheat the groats into a pan and you toast them it adds this kind of biscuity um, sweet delicious toasty flavor to the final dish and so you you prepare your buckwheat like that by by dry toasting it and then you mix in an egg and you put it in the pan and you're kind of mashing it up. So the egg's cooking with the dry buckwheat. And once that's been kind of cooked, you pour in your chicken stock, you put your butter in and then you add seasonings. And Sally just talks about salt and pepper here, but I've put rosemary in, I've put sage in, I've put nigella seeds in, whatever I really feel like. And you cook that buckwheat until the stock has been absorbed and yeah I'll just go on about this again you've got the toasty flavor of the buckwheat <laughs> you've got the depth of the egg you've got the richness of the butter you've got the salt and the pepper and then you've got the depth of the chicken stock together 
it's, I mean, on a, on a cold December evening, to have a bowl of that in your hand steaming, it's just, I, I, can't, I can't stop making it. I, I love it. <laughs> oh, I believe it. And so I, how, when I, you, yeah. <laughs> when you make that first recipe where you're soaking yeah. it, and then she says, store it in the refrigerator in an airtight container. How long would, does it, I mean, yeah. sounds like it doesn't last you very long, but no. how long does it last in the refrigerator? Do you know? I don't keep mine in the refrigerator and I never have done. I've just, okay. maybe I, maybe I, um, I dehydrate mine rather than put it in the oven. Um, and they are really dry when they're dehydrated. I mean, like seriously mm -hmm. dry. You can feel it. You can feel the weight of them. And I just keep them in a container, uh, you know, an airtight container in the cupboard. And they've been like that for at least a month and absolutely fine. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, okay, great. Obviously, Sally is the, the guru. So if she says, <laughs> <laughs> put it in the fridge in an airtight container, then probably you should follow her instructions, not mine. But yeah. I have put it in the fridge, in the cupboard for a month and it's been it's been fine as long as it's properly dehydrated. I mean, no moisture left in it at all. Absolutely. Maybe it depends on where you live. If it's very humid, I know she yeah. lives in a very humid area of the U.S. So, okay, yeah, that makes mm. sense. I haven't made the other two recipes on page four six five, the kasha casserole, and the kasha nut loaf, mainly because I just I love the Russian kasha just as it is. You know, I don't, I don't think you can, you yeah. can beat it, but I like the idea of the nut loaf, you know, with, with some yeah. other extra bits in it and then, um, cooking it like that. I, I like the idea of that. So maybe sometime soon I will get to doing that cashew nut loaf. If you haven't tried buckwheat, it's a, it's got a delicious flavor in and of itself, even if it's not toasted, it's a very particular flavor and it's a lovely, lovely grain. So if it grows near you and you can get hold of some, Definitely give this recipe a go because it's it's simple mm -hmm. and it's delicious, really delicious. Yeah, and the nut loaf looks really good, and she's got shredded carrot in there, so I'm thinking you could use your ginger carrots in that. Oh, yum! And that That'd would be, nice. be that's looking pretty good. No, you've definitely sold me on this recipe, Allison. I haven't made this yet, but it's going on my list. So <laughs> yay! Um, Mission yeah, accomplished. Gotta do that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, let's ping it back to you. You give us one. All right. Oh, and for anybody in the U.S. who's listening, if you order your some of your bulk dry goods from Azure Standard, I know I've mentioned them before, but they sell, um, you can buy, you know, up to 50-pound bags of buckwheat groats, organic Gosh. ones from them for a great price. Grown out, grown out here relatively close to me. Okay. I think that it's probably easier to get buckwheat groats in the States than it is in England. Because I remember when we lived in England, oh. we had a problem getting local buckwheat. It's not grown in England at all. And a lot of it's imported huh. from China to really? um, England. And I kind of don't trust anything that says it's organic that's come from China. <laughs> right, um, right. Well, we have... But it's grown I... in Europe. It's grown in Italy here. So um, if you can get hold of some European um, buckwheat, from continental Europe, that is probably more, um, yeah, probably I'd recommend doing that rather than trying to get the Chinese one, which is in a lot of UK shops. Sorry, yeah, you I were going to say something. I know the exact history of it in the US, but I know that it is 
I mean, I've seen it in recipes going pretty far back in American, like hmm. Northern North American kind of history. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's exact history out here. Okay. Well, this is going to kind of be a, another grain one here. So, mm-hmm. well, I, yeah, buckwheat's not a great, quinoa is not a grain either, is it? No, Isn't that's the same a thing. Also? That's a seed. Yeah. 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 But it kind of gets lumped into the grain category in our mind, which is interesting. Mm. All right. So let's jump back again on page 455. We're sticking pretty close to each other. I noticed, mm. although yeah. we did not choose these and, you know, we kind of chose them and talked about them before, yeah. but all right. So this is one that is so easy and simple and you've made this before, dear listener, I'll bet <laughs> you just don't know it. Um, so this is breakfast porridge and have you ever made oatmeal and you put the oatmeal in the pot and you put water in it, you put it on the stove, you turn it on, you heat it. Okay. So if you're listening and you're like, yeah, I've done that. Okay. So do the same thing, put the oatmeal in the pot, put it in the water, put it on the stove. Don't turn the stove on, <laughs> walk away, go to bed get up the next morning, then turn the stove on. Okay. Now you basically you've done it. (laughs) That's pretty much all there is to it. Um, so you're going to put the oats and water and, um, some kind of an acidulator. What does she call those? Um, some kind of a, a ferment. Acidulator. Um, I like that. Acidulous. Anyways, um, so some whey or yogurt, kefir or buttermilk. I usually use kefir. Like I said before, that's usually what I have on hand. So um, mix your oats and your water together. She actually mixes the oats with just a portion of the water and then adds the rest of the water the next day. Mm-hmm. I Uh, Like you said, she's the guru. I don't know if there's a specific reason for that. I just mix all the water in at that time the night before. Yeah, um, me too. Just to eliminate a step in the morning. And I literally put it on the stove, on the burner where it's going to cook. And then the next morning I get up and I just shuffle out and flip the switch and turn it on. So it's pretty nice fast food. I like that. Yeah, well, Alison, I'm a clever person, so stay <laughs> I always put mine in a separate bowl, and I'm trying to think of a, a very astute reason why I do that now. But I don't well, think I did one. too. I did too. Mm-hmm. I put it in a container and put a lid on it, and then just over time, I just kept thinking, you know, you do this 150 times in a row, and you think, what kind of steps can I eliminate? And I think actually I put mine in the spatula. fridge sometimes. <laughs> That's why. I put yeah. mine in the fridge yeah. sometimes the next day, and I don't cook it, and... I'd look a bit, well, I'd miss a saucepan if one was in my fridge. I don't have that many saucepans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, Sally has about a thousand variations listed yeah. here. Well, you know, not a thousand, but I told you, I, I told you I'm always exaggerating. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, she has different variations listed and, and you, anybody who's eaten no meal knows that there's just no end to it. anybody who's watched Allison eat porridge knows mm. there's no end to the variations and they don't all have to be sweet. I know, um, we have a tradition in the U S it seems like a breakfast has to be sweet, which doesn't really make any sense. And your, your porridge doesn't have to be sweet. However, I will say my kids, like it the exact same way every single time and you know how kids can be sometimes you change and they're like what is this yeah (laughs) why are you feeding me this so my kids like it with um 
maple syrup, cream, or well, not so much cream, but just like whole milk with the cream shaken in and butter. So that's how they like mm. it. Traditionally, um, oatmeal in Scotland was cooked with salt. Mm-hmm. So it was a mm-hmm. savory, kind of savoryish yeah. dish. It wasn't wasn't made sweet. And mostly I eat my oatmeal savory um, because historically I haven't eaten sweet food. So I've just got used to it savory and, and I love it that way. Um, anyone who's listened to this yeah. podcast before knows I often stir miso into my porridge because I love the flavour, the saltiness and the flavour that, that miso gives it and I'll put olive oil in with it sometimes. I think it's really important to add a fat to um, bring out the flavour and round out the, the nutrition definitely. with it. And she definitely says to to do that. Um, and there's, there is something wonderful about butter with porridge. There really is. Um, it's kind oh, of like yeah. the butter it, with the cashew thing. It mm. elevates it. It definitely does. I remember one time we did a like a really fancy fundraiser dinner out on the farm in Virginia, and we made kind of on a whim like a sage oat side dish. So it was mm. kind of like a savory side that that went alongside these, you know, salty meats and things like that. It was really good. It, it was surprising. Delicious. We're just like looking around, like, what do we have that we can use? Ah, we have sage. Ah, we have oatmeal. Voila. (laughs) I always love this little chunk that she has on the next page. And I think about it Mm. every single time I make this oatmeal. Oh, yeah. Where she says um, on page 456, in Scotland, it was the custom to prepare oatmeal in large batches and pour the cooked cereal Mm. into a drawer in the kitchen hutch or dresser. Squares of congealed oatmeal could then be cut out as needed and reheated by adding a little water. This process allowed the oatmeal to ferment a second time. So I don't pour it in the drawer, but um, (laughs) sometimes I intentionally make a larger batch of oatmeal and then I pour it into another container, kind of like you said, and Mm. I put it in the fridge so that then the next morning I can just cut out a piece and heat it up with some more milk for the kids. So just depending yeah. on what you what your needs are. All right, Alison, what do you have next? Huh? Uh, I just want to say Sorry. I think that's a great idea because why yeah. cook something twice? Why turn the stove on twice, three, four, five times? Just make up yeah. a big batch. You know, pour yeah. it into a, a shallow dish and then you can actually just, you know, cut it nicely. And it just, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. makes complete sense. So, yeah, I just wanted to add that. Okay, um, so mm-hmm. my third choice, my third and final choice is another kind of grainy food it's on page 510 and sally titles it indian style pancakes but i know it as dosas and this again is one of the recipes that i've started making very soon after getting this book and i remember particularly before gable was born i made it many 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 times and whenever anyone came to eat at our house <laughs> I would make them doses and Yum. it's it's a very kind of simple thing in that it's double rice to lentils usually I use um, lentils that have had the holes taken off like red split lentils and you're doing what you've just done to the porridge basically soaking them with um, an acidic medium that way I don't have to say acidulificatorium or whatever it was <laughs> and you leave that basically to ferment and to 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 do the um 
processing of the grains and the legumes for you. And then you drain it, and I usually rinse it as well, and then pop it in your food processor and just put a little bit of water in with it while it's going until you get a, a batter that you're happy with. It looks like a pancake batter. And then um, you ferment that for 24 hours. So it, it requires some forethought if you want to make it. You can't just get up in the morning and go, I'm going to make my doses. Um, you need a few days planning. But there's not actually a lot of work involved. It is literally just pour water over it, leave it, put it in your food processor, put some water in, and then leave it again. And I remember doing this without putting um, an inoculant in it as well and it working fine. So I, hmm. she does say whey. Um, she's also got all lemon juice. So, you know, if you're not eating dairy, you can use lemon juice. She could use sourdough. Um, sorry, not you, yeah, you could use sourdough starter. You could use sauerkraut juice is what I wanted to say first as well. And then mm. once it's fermented and you see the bubbles in it, you start to smell it, you stir it and bubbles will kind of come up. It smells delicious. And then I cook them in the cast iron pan. Um, I use generally ghee to cook these in the cast iron pan because it's traditional um, fat that would have been used, that, was, that is used by people who eat doses in India. Um, but also mm -hmm. because I love the flavour of it with the ghee. And I heat up my cast iron pan until it's hotter than one would imagine. I mean, I leave it quite a long time on a medium heat until I can't hold my hand over the top of it for very long. Pretty much like in the video we did with Charlie when she was cooking pizzas in the cast right. iron pan in her van a few weeks ago. She said she, you know, she holds her hand over a cast iron pan. When she can't hold it there anymore, then it's warm enough. And then I'll put my fat in. And really, I mean, I'm just generous with that ghee. Because it's not very often that I'm going to make the doses. You know, it's not something I'm doing every night. It's a special meal for us. And so I'm going to use the amount of fat that feels nice to have a special meal. So I put my ghee in and I've done it with lard as well. Um, and let that melt and then put some of the dough in and generally some of the batter in, sorry. Generally I do it so it fills up my whole cast iron pan, which I think is eight inches, 20 centimetres. And then wow. leave it to cook for five minutes. It's quite thin, so you don't want, you don't need to leave it to cook for long and then flip it. If you're worried about um, flipping something so big, just make yours a bit smaller, you know, make a, a smaller... Um, circle in your pan flip it and cook the other side and then Sally does say you can keep them warm in the oven um, which I have done before um, and she says brush pan with butter between each pancake I just put a bit of extra ghee in and then I remember I mean the, the best way that I've eaten these and I've done it quite often is to make some accompaniments to go with it so I will often have a, a yogurt style dip. So that's yogurt and chopped up cucumber and then some mint all mixed in. And then some thinly shredded red onions mixed with, if I've got some, some fresh coriander and maybe some fresh coriander seeds or just the seeds if I haven't got the fresh. And that's in another little bowl next to it. And Often we've eaten it with mango chutney, which I've never made, but um, is a traditional, mm. if you go to an Indian restaurant in the UK, you will get mango chutney with um, 
the kind of the bread things you have there. And it's just, it's wonderful to have those things on the table and have a spoon and put them on the dosa and, you know, to eat it in whatever way you want to, whether you want to fold it up, save it until you've got some curry at the side, if you're doing curry as well, whether you want to put something in it, some some lentils or some some fish, some salad. But it they're a really fun dish and something that is nutritious as well and has been fermented so they're easier on your tummy. And the flavour is delicious and the fat that's in them when you're cooking makes them even nicer. And to show someone, again, if you've got someone coming to um, to share food with you and for me I would cook an Indian style dish with it like the lentils that I ate for lunch um, they're nice to have on the side or they're nice to have as a starter and they're they're fun you know they're they're fun to make and they're fun to eat and share and I love them <laughs> it's like they an sound ode to absolutely doses. delicious they and are. I see on her description I just gotta know Allison I just gotta know she says you can make the batter even more thin by adding more water, but they're hard to turn mm. without tearing. So I got to know, I know that somewhere along the line, you've said to yourself, now how thin can I get these? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it depends on how confident you are with your pan. You know, if you had a non-stick pan, there'd be no trouble at all because it wouldn't be sticking Uh, at all and uh it would slide out of the curved edge and it just, you know, if you have a smaller pan, it wouldn't be, you know, you're not being so ambitious and you're going for something that's maybe, you know, five inches across rather than eight inches across. It wouldn't be a problem. It depends how kind of at one with your pan and your (laughs) your stove and your cooking fat you are to know, you know, it, I've got better over the years flipping these and flipping pancakes because I know what temperature I need my pan to be at. I know how much fat I need to use. I know how long it's going to mm-hmm. take. I know which spatula I'm going to use to turn them. And I I know how boldly confident I need to be to uh-huh. turn them without it splitting. But generally, I mean, I'd say I'm I'm losing my hands now to try and show. Mine aren't that thin. Mine are maybe... Um, maybe three, three millimetres thick, maybe three millimetres, less than half a centimetre of a definite, maybe like three millimetres thick. You could make them down as thin as like, you know, a crepe, one millimetre, but they would be harder to turn because they're not like, if you make a crepe out of, for example, buckwheat or one of the other grains that tends to have a good um, facility to bind together, it's easier to turn those ones because they're more gloopy. Whereas this is lentils and rice. It's not, they're not two um, grains that are going to necessarily stick together very easily. So erring on the side of caution, if you don't want them broken or if you've got guests coming, do them a little bit thicker or do them a little bit smaller. And I'd say, yeah, probably my average is maybe two, three millimetres. Okay, okay. So, yeah. I wonder if ghee... (laughs) Ghee is, um, remember Beatrice talked in one of our very earliest Patreon bonuses mm. where she talked mm. about making the ghee um, where, with her mom where she grew up in Kenya. Yeah. And then ghee is also traditional in 
in India as well. And I wonder if it's because, so both of those cultures, um, you know, rely a lot on the cow, the, the Maasai, yeah. and then also in India, no different areas. Um, but butter will spoil very quickly mm. if it's kept like warm. But if you, if it's warm and it's separated into clarified butter or ghee, and then you yeah. take out like the, the milky stuff, then it can actually last at room temperature for a pretty long time. So it's just yeah. interesting thinking about how we have these traditional foods that kind of came about. You have to remember there wasn't refrigerators, there wasn't, you know, preservatives other than, you know, salt or sugar in some cases. And, and the way the foods had to, they had to fit the way people lived first, you know, the food yeah. had to serve the environment and the people. They came from a need, you know, that ghee came from right, a need right. that you can't leave the fat out for long. Oh, look, here's something right. we can do. And look, we can leave the fat yeah. out for a long time now. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Just thinking about how all that stuff comes about. Okay. Yeah. I, I like the taste of it. I really like the taste of ghee. And, yeah. and I like the yeah. fact that um, I can fry at higher heats in it than butter, which is why I use ghee for these for that dose of frying because totally. I can get my pan much much hotter. And you know, pancakes in a not hot pan is going to be a disaster. So ghee is your ally for sure. <laughs> yeah, isn't that the truth? Yeah, <laughs> ghee can be heated. I know you said this on the fat episode, but it's good to just note it can be heated a lot hotter than butter. Yeah, because you don't have the, you know, you're not basically caramelizing it at that point without all the milk and it turning into sugar okay so let's go to your last dress i feel like we've let's we've already we're on the last one i can't believe it we've got to I do know. another episode look at us <laughs> i'm proud of us yeah we should do another one hey guys let us know if you like this we'll do another one because yeah. we could go on there's more recipes all right uh we're gonna jump to page 547 so again i stayed pretty close to you Mm -hmm. This is gingerbread. I absolutely yeah. love this recipe. It's so decadent is probably the best way to describe it. And it smells so good when you're making it. It's mm. the one of the few times I've ever been tempted to taste batter. I don't I never really have that urge like, oh, let me lick the spoon or whatever. I never I never got that. But this just smells so good. So this is a mixture of um, it's actually the first baked like not counting sourdough breads I won't count mm -hmm. that um, but it was the first time I tried doing a soaked grain okay this is one of the very first recipes I made out of the book and has survived as a favorite um, so you have your freshly ground flour which I've used all different kinds of flour you can use <laughs> she has spelt how, how do you say this awesome kamut I say kama, but it's probably kamu. Kama. I, I no say kefir, it's probably is kefir, isn't it? You know, yeah, so no I'm probably wrong. <laughs> we all know what we're talking about. So communication is achieved. Um, I've used einkorn. She has whole wheat flour listed here. You could do a mixture of flours, whatever. Um, buttermilk, kefir, yogurt, butter, grated ginger, rapadura, which is like a dark, coarse cane sugar. Or you could use um, sucanut. Was, those are just brand names. Mm -hmm. um, or I've used honey before, or I've also tried it with coconut sugar, kind of whatever strikes your fancy. Um, molasses, eggs, cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, ginger, mustard, salt, baking powder. 
So before you carry on with the gingerbread, what I wanted to say to um, listeners is that we're going to put this gingerbread recipe and we're going to put the um, cashier recipe onto a document that will be downloadable for patrons. So um, don't worry about scribbling anything down if you don't have a copy yeah. of Nourishing Traditions. <laughs> Sally's given us permission to put those two recipes onto a document and we'll put the recipes and we'll put our own kind of notes and ideas of having you know, cooked it cook them in our kitchens for many many years so you can um, have a read and let those inform you as well I wanted to say that because I meant to say it earlier and I forgot um, so that long list of ingredients will be on our um, pdf that's downloadable for patrons I'm surprised to see mustard there I have never put mustard in gingerbread <laughs> I was surprised too but I I hear and I obey yeah, <laughs> and it's well, really yeah. good. <laughs> wow. Um, think about the dynamic flavor of mustard and ginger with like, there's sort of that heat situation mm, going on there. Mm. I wonder if that's why they're both paired in there. I don't really know, but it, I, I, I thought the same thing. Are you sure about this? Mm. But I just did it and it is wonderful. Wow. So okay. it's it's just really a simple recipe. If you've ever made a baked quick bread, it's it's the same as the oatmeal. Make it, mix your batter together, and then stop and leave it overnight. And then the next day, resume work in the kitchen and bake it. That's really all there is to soaking. I mean, I before I started trying to soak anything, I just had this idea in my head, okay, what kind of techniques, what, what do I need to do? What do I need to know? And it's really just the same process you've done your whole life. Just stop before you bake it and let it sit and then bake it mm. and this yeah. um <clears throat> i definitely want to let people know watch it as it bakes it, it's really dense of course depends on the flour i suppose but tends mm -hmm. to be pretty dense and it will bake for roughly an hour but do not over bake it like just keep checking on it because what i found is if you over bake it it's really dry um uh, kind okay. of intolerable but if so you is it is it thick? She doesn't say how deep it is. What is it how thick does it come out? She puts it in a nine by thirteen pan and that mm. will fill the pan, you know, it'll bake it, it doesn't rise real high. It's okay. kind of flat. It's not really real like it's not puffed up in the middle like a cake. Yeah. Um but um it'll it, it bakes up to just about the bottom of the rim on a nine by 13 kind of a standard okay thing. okay and I love when we serve this I actually have some of it upstairs on the counter so I can't wait to come <laughs> eat that I should have that with my egg yeah um I one of my favorite things to do ah, is open a quart of applesauce and heat it on the stove and a lot of our applesauce that we make is spiced so we have cinnamon and nutmeg mm. all spice in our applesauce but you could mix it also on the stove after you opened it and so you have hot applesauce so put your warm gingerbread in a bowl put some applesauce in the side and then whip some cream don't sweeten the cream because with the gingerbread is sweet and the applesauce is sweet it's just too much but if you don't sweeten the um, cream whip it and put some of that on top Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it melts takes me away. It's so oh. good. It's the perfect combination. All the textures are there and there's mm. heat there and there's like that, the fat on the cream. Mm. It's pretty stinking good. Oh, wow. You've sold me on that one for sure. 
Yeah. Gosh. I know. Wow. I know based on the other things you've baked that the guys have loved that this was definitely something Gabe would love. Yeah, now Gabriel would like it. And <laughs> you know, like looking at it, Gabriel could do most of it. You know, because like oh. you said, you just mix it, then you stop, and then it right. looks like you just literally pour it into the pan the day later. So it's not totally. an involved process. It's not like the doses, you know. He would no. um, struggle with the food processor and the cast iron pan and all of that lot. But this, <laughs> um, you know, you could make with kids for sure. Yeah, probably the most involved part of this is shredding the ginger. <laughs> and I, well, you know, shredding ginger is kind of a pain. Yeah, yeah. But I do heartily recommend shredding the ginger. Don't just think, I'll use powdered ginger instead. Okay. No, you have to shred that ginger because when, oh, you guys, when you're eating this delicious, warm gingerbread, there's going to be little bursts of ginger throughout it. And it just takes it to a different level. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fresh ginger is, is amazing. That's why, I mean, in the ginger carrots, it's just, it's a fabulous thing. It, it oh, yeah. Transforms. Oh, my gosh. Food. You could, you can make this a carrot cake and mix your ginger oh, carrots yeah. into it. Ah, okay. Next yeah, up. Now, now you're talking. <laughs> Gingerbread There's, version two with carrots. I have a list. Um, I had typed this up, Allison, a long time ago when we started mm. doing the first Nourishing Traditions episode. So um, I'm going to put this in um, a place where the patrons can download it. I'll probably mm -hmm. link it um, in the Patreon feed. But I, I have a list of recipes, just a couple of recipes that I have loved out of nourishing traditions, maybe like 30 or 40 recipes. <laughs> and then also a list of recipes that I want to try. Um, uh -huh. And those okay. hang in my kitchen. And I just thought maybe they're useful for somebody else. So I'll add those into the document. With the that would be a nicer compliment to kind of just flicking through mm -hmm. the book because it can be a bit overwhelming with its hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. And so yeah. to go through a list and go, oh, Andrea likes these ones. Okay, I'm going to go and have a nose at these. It's, yeah. um, that would be a nice thing to do, I think. Thank mm -hmm. you. How many times have I seen somebody post something or like in a different cookbook, there'll be a recipe and like the gaps cookbook by Hillary Boynton. That's mm -hmm. such a good book. And she has some recipes in there and she goes, well, I actually got these out of nourishing traditions. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, what? I don't even remember seeing yeah. that in there. And I've exactly. read it three times. So sometimes just having somebody point something out is really helpful. Yeah, I agree. Wonderful. Epic. Oh, Anything else? I can't believe that you are not desperate for your breakfast now after talking about those recipes. <laughs> I am, Alison. I am desperate. I'm just a professional and I'm hiding it really well. Oh, okay. Okay. You can move the microphone away from your grumbling tummy. <laughs> yeah. Are you picking that up? Can you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm oh, glad no. I've got the gingerbread. I actually had made um, hmm. a lot of the gingerbread and I cut it into squares and froze bags ah, of it okay. so Freeze i had just well, taken then. a bag of it out the other day yeah yeah i'd taken a bag out just to have like a really nice fast convenience food so Lovely. enjoy it'll be easy and quick yeah all right well allison yeah till next time indeed thank you very much andrea happy cooking yeah bye bye <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth. 
and Alison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. Thank you.